Welcome back to Season 3 of Birthing Injustice. If you're new to the show, I'm Ruth D'Souza, and this podcast is all about changing the way people experience birth, especially people who experience health systems from disadvantaged or prejudiced positions. This season, I'm really excited about bringing you a whole new set of knowledges and experiences from our remarkable guests. And today, I'm delighted to kick things off with Cherise Buzzacott. Cherise is a Central Aranda woman from Alice Springs, Northern Territory. She's a midwife, and she was the very first graduate of the Australian Catholic University's Bachelor of Midwifery Indigenous course, a program that offers students from the Northern Territory the opportunity to undertake study blocks in Brisbane while otherwise remaining in their communities. She's a passionate advocate for birthing on country, and she joins us today to talk about her work and the life experiences that underpin it. Just a content warning that we will be talking about miscarriage and stillbirth in this episode. So Cherise, why do you care about birthing? Uh, so I care about birthing because I feel like as a woman, as in particular an Aboriginal woman, I feel like it's very central to who I am. So as an Aboriginal woman, I'm you know, expected to have a family one day, um, and so part of that is, you know, having a good experience of birthing because I feel like it all comes down to your birthing experience and that's the way that you'll bond with your baby and how your partner will then bond with you and your baby as well. Um, and, you know, it's an experience that stays with you as a woman, um, as a person who gives birth, you know, that's an experience that will stay with you. Um, every time, you know, I think of my son and I think about it, the experience, it wasn't the best experience that some people would say, you know, it wasn't the greatest experience, but for me it was my birthing experience. So I care about birthing as a midwife. Um, it's very important to me to ensure that women have a very positive birthing experience and also what they deem to be a good experience for themselves. So, yeah, as, as a midwife, it's central to who I am and what I do. Awesome, Cherise. I, I'm kind of... Also conscious that um, we haven't talked about where you're based, and I think that's that's also a really important part of this conversation. Place, yeah. So I'm based um, up in Alice Springs, so in Bandwa, as its um, traditional name. I live on Aranda country. Um, I'm an Aranda woman, so I'm on my traditional country, I work um, at the Alice Springs Hospital here. Um, it's the only hospital sort of within the Central Australian region, and we get women birthing you know, coming to birth and come through the service through, um, you know, as far as WA, South Australia, even women from Queensland coming to birth in Alice. So, um, you know, it's a marginally small hospital, but it is a teaching hospital. So we do get a lot of people coming up from down south to train here. Um, and I work in Alice Springs on the maternity ward. So, you know, there's a nice little group of us midwives that work there. Um, I've been there since I was a student. I've had my interactions with the hospital um, since student days. So um, I feel very much at home in Alice Springs and in particular working with the hospital. It sounds like you've got a really nice crew that you're working with, a good team. And you also do some mentoring. Um, can you tell us about how the needs of Aboriginal midwifery students might be different from other students? Yeah, so I guess the different needs are... Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people could probably relate to having a larger family, um, you know, being not being able to study on the on your own country. So, 
you know, Aboriginal people, we have a very strong connection to the country. So I feel like that plays a huge part in our ability to be able to fo- be focused and be grounded is to be able to study in a location that's familiar to us. Um, and it's almost like there is this kind of invisible line or this inv- invisible rope that kind of pulls us back to country because, you know, I feel that every time I leave home, when I, even if I'm away for a week, I still feel that, you know, instant almost relief. Everything lifts as soon as I spot those hills coming over the coming over Alice Springs and I spot, so I spot the ranges I almost feel grounded so um, you know there is that um, I guess support that is needed for people that are off country that are studying um, and being, being able to provide that sort of support or relief for them to be able to go back to country from time to time so you know in and away from base model that's perfect a student can study at their location where they live and just come to uni or have a lecturer or someone travel out to them. Um, you know, in the the ability to embed a lot of, um, you know, our cultural knowledge and the things that we're shown and a lot of the traditions and things, strategies that we use in our everyday life when we're at home, those are the kinds of things that have to be thought about in the process of when you're supporting students because Aboriginal students, um, you know, our, our I guess our outlook is a lot more different. It's a lot more broader than just you know, someone who's an inner city, um, that they, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're able to focus, they have a smaller sort of reach of where they're living, where their friends are, where their families are, their social connections, you know, whereas us as Aboriginal people, I have quite a broader outlook because I have families and connections and I have kinship to people that are living further distances from me. I also have connection through stories to other lands. So um, being able to, I guess, support Aboriginal people and having a worldly sort of view of this is what their day-to-day looks like. It's not just get up in the morning, have breakfast, catch the bus and go to school. You know, there are a lot of different things that impact our day-to-day and how it's going to work. And although I might be physically present in class and I'm, you know, I am listening attentive, you know, my mind is elsewhere. I could be thinking about, you know, potentially I have, you know, not a, not a close family member, but in my kinship, I have a connection to this person where there's a life loss. So my mind is there or there's some, you know, travel that's coming up that's needing to be done because I have to travel out to attend to some other business at this other community. So, you know, there needs to be some sort of leeway and support for Aboriginal students to be able to, I guess, be flexible, you know, because that was the thing with me. I couldn't fit in a box when I was studying. I needed to be able to be supported to, um, you know, take some time off from school to come back. Um, you know, how can you facilitate um, that student missing out on two weeks when you have to have like 98% attendance, you know. So there's different things that have to be thought about. And that only comes from talking to the Aboriginal person involved, you know, that comes from the student. Um, I can't be the one to say, um, you know, that this Aboriginal student needs this kind of support. I need to be able to ask them and say, look, what kind of support do you need? You know, is it family? Is it children? Is it um, is it other social commitments or sort of commitments within your community um, because, you know, as Aboriginal people, we have um, not delegation, but we kind of have a responsibility to our elders and people within our kinship. We have a responsibility to them to ensure that they're okay so that we're able to then go on and look after ourselves and do what we have to do. So being able to mentor an Aboriginal student, for me, you know, that's all I kind of touch on everything else before we begin to focus on the studies at hand. I'll go through everything. How How is everything else traveling in your life? Because I know that if you have a clear mind, you're then able to 
take on some of the advice that hopefully I can give you, um, you know, as being a mentor, um, not just a midwife, but also as an Aboriginal woman, you know, as a mum and as someone who kind of I've got a little bit of experience around doing certain things. So if I can help someone in that way, I will. Um, Otherwise, I always just go to the person and say, what do you, you know, what do you need from me? And you kind of give me the direction and we're kind of learning together, I guess, because I like to, you know, learn from the person who I'm supporting as well. I love that, Sharice. And I kind of think, um, you know, your whole attitude to students is seeing them in their wholeness in the context of country and kinship. And I was kind of wondering um, what it was like for you to be the first in your family to go to university, but also what it was like to be doing a a specific midwifery Indigenous course. Yeah, so um, I guess being the first one to go away for uni was a massive um, accomplishment for not just me, but my whole family. Um, you know, I put it, my, my parents can take credit. Um, most of my close family and, and a lot of my friends as well can take credit because they were the ones that helped to support me. So, you know, they're ones that are there when I felt like I couldn't do it any longer or when I wanted to give up, you know, when things became too hard and, um, you know, in my eyes, they're too hard, but these people, they obviously believed, you know, no, you can do it, just keep on going. So, you know, it was a massive accomplishment you know, I was always directed to, you're going to study something, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, my mum wanted to do nursing. So she kind of, I got, I kind of got that health view, um, but I focused on midwifery. But for my family, it was just a massive accomplishment because they, you know, finished year 12. That's great. They both, I think my dad finished year nine, my mum graduated year 10. And so to even finish year 12, it wasn't, that wasn't a normal thing. Even when I was growing up, because a lot of the kids my age were going off getting school-based apprenticeships and starting working. So, um, you know, there was no sort of further education. And the people that did go on to get higher education, they they kind of left town and never came back and, you know, have since started life elsewhere interstate. I was going to focus on getting my degree and come back to Alison work. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be based in my hometown because I want to help my mob. I want to help the community that I live and so to be, you know, the first one to uni, it was just a massive accomplishment for all of us. And even just, you know, I, th- I feel like the university as well being, we were kind of like the lab rats. So, you know, we were the first group to come through the Away From Base model, which is the Bachelor of Midwifery Indigenous course um, at ACU. And so, you know, for them, it was a major accomplishment because that first year we definitely struggled. We you know, we had to do a lot of firsts and so um, we had to kind of iron out a lot of the kinks for everyone else. And, you know, by the time we got to the second year, you know, we were still doing a lot of firsts because we were the first in the second year. And then when we were in our third year, we were the first in the third year. So, you know, it was definitely a struggle and um, the university supported us. Like there was literally nothing that they couldn't do for us at that time. But also, they didn't want to make it easy, you know, like we, ha- we still had to abide by, you know, that the university has strict rules and regulations and they couldn't bend the rules just for us. Um, but they did support us and they did show, you know, a lot of, um, I guess, um, empathy towards us, knowing that we were studying away from community, you know, those few weeks that we did travel to Brisbane. So um, being in the the first from the away from base model, I was... It, that didn't cross my mind. I still remember the day when I was actually told by my lecturer, yeah, you're, you're finished. Like I handed my clinical prac book over and she said to me, yep, you're done. She marked it in front of me. And I remember just sort of being like, oh, I don't think it really hit me. 
and then sort of having a bit of a cry and then kind of overwhelm walking to my other lecturer's office, you know, shaking. She was a, she's an Aboriginal midwife and a lecturer and walking into her office, um, Michelle Koziak, and just being like, I finished, I'm done. And then we both just hugged and broke down and slowly through the day, more and more of the students came through. And I feel like for them, it was a relief because those students that were struggling, I feel like for them, that was a relief because they were like, okay, we can do it because someone, one of us has done it. So, you know, I know I can finish because Sharice has done it. You know, I didn't want any gratitude or anything for, for completing it. I just did it for myself and my family. But knowing that the other students were looking at me and they were feeling like, okay, this is going to push me to finish because I I want to feel what Sharice feels, which was instant relief that finally this is all over and, um, you know, I can begin to to have a career in doing what I love doing. So, yeah. Wow. And, and I love how um, you talked about you've you've come home because you want to help your mob and that a lot of people who get educated decide that, um, you know, they're going to work away from home. I'm kind of wondering about how you manage all your different commitments because you've worked in a large inner city tertiary hospital. Uh, now you're at Alice Springs Hospital, but you also work as an outreach Midwife, can you tell us a little bit um, about what it's like to birth in a remote community and, and what kind of skills and capabilities a midwife would need to do that kind of work? Yeah, so, you know, I we started this um, small group called Midwives Outbush, just a couple of us midwives. We were doing some outreach out to some of the communities around Central Australia and, you know, I was going out for a few days a week, um, you know, once a month and, just seeing the women, getting to see them out in the bush and then to see me again back at the hospital um, when they came into town for sit-down, they would come in and they would, I would see them in clinic and then when they come into birth a couple of weeks later, you know, I would be on hand or available um, most, mostly for their birth care but if not, I would definitely pop in, you know, afterwards and on the postnatal ward and see them with their new baby um, and then, you know, again when going back out for outreach, I'd see them back out in community with their baby and I'd always make sure to to catch up with them and so I you know that that sort of continuity um you know not a complete continuity of care model but it's definitely there that I've developed a relationship with these women and being able to see them along different intervals of their pregnancy um their birth and also um with having their new baby Travelling out bush it really is um a one-of-a-kind experience like if you don't get the opportunity I really feel like you do, you are missing out because it's such a humbling experience going up bush and you're seeing, you know, these um, Aboriginal people, they're living off the country, you know, they're very much still living a, a mostly traditional lives. And I just love to see just the happiness and the joy. Like they don't need very much. They don't need to be in town. You know, I guess the internet and phone stuff is, is important to them. But at the end of the day, it's being on country and it's being, you know, close to the community and the the, I guess what they've grown up and what they've known. For me, going out bush has been a really good experience. I've I've loved travelling out bush. I took a bit of a break with moving away and having a baby and um, just getting ready to gear up to go back out um, to a different community next year. So in January, I plan to do some more outreach um, through the mob clinics that we run here. Uh, you know, I'm a big advocate for birthing on country, but I definitely know there are a lot of issues for a lot of women in regards to birthing out bush, but um, it is doable. Like we have fully functioning clinics. 
Um, we just need the manpower and the support to be able to do it. Um, we've come close to having a few babies when I've been out in community. Um, women, they just know that you're going to be there and they just, what they do is they just don't come into clinic. They really wait until the last minute. And then I guess it's up to the discretion of the hospital, um, the evacuating doctor and the team to say whether the woman will stay if they feel like she's close to giving birth or whether she'll go into town. And there's been a couple of occasions where women have given birth and everything's gone pretty straightforward. And um, shamefully enough, they do have to come into town. Um, they then get sent into town with their baby and, you know, then they have the added stress of being in there for a week or two and then having to come back to communities. So I feel for the women because, you know, I, I had the opportunity to have my partner with me. So, you know, to have someone to be on their own and have no support people and there is very little support for support persons. So even, you know, mothers and sisters and aunties to be able to come in um, and those families are meeting babies when they're one or two weeks old, you know. So I, I couldn't imagine having that, that my baby would not be able to meet its father or meet its grandmother or, you know, I just, um, I feel a lot. And so I, I want to be able to give women the opportunity if if all the dots connect and everything is well and, you know, we have a fully staffed clinic and we have the access to emergency equipment if needed, then, you know, why can't these women have that experience of being able to birth? And, you know, women will go with their intuition and if they feel like they're well enough, there's definitely a few babies born a year in Alice Springs that are, um, you know, BBA born before arrival. So, you know, with those women, I, I, I commend them because I feel like, you know, it is your body. You have the ability to know if something's going wrong. We can give you the advice. Um, you know, we can inform you and say this is what we feel is best for you. But those women, I want to be able to support them, you know, 100%. And I want to work with them to be able to give them an experience that stays with them. It's important for babies to be born on country so they do have that connection. You know, I've been imagining this this world that you're talking about as you've been speaking and I was, I was wondering how you brought that world to your role as a project officer when you were in Canberra for the Birthing on Country project that you did for the College of Midwives. How, how did you enjoy that role or how did you embody it? Um, I kind of went in with it with an open mind and, um, you know, that was kind of from the get-go, from when I got there, it was like anything is possible. You know, we need to dream big. And um, what I wanted to do was I wanted to represent the women from the remote communities, from the women that I had seen and the, and I had met and spoken to about birthing and um, the feelings that they have about birthing away from country. And so I wanted to represent them in everything that I did because I at that point I hadn't had a baby. Um, so in my mind, I thought if I can set this up, this will be something that you know, even though I'm only 40 k's down the road, the opportunity for me to birth of my traditional country where I've grown up, you know, that for me would be the best experience for me. So I wanted to get things going. I wanted to to help and I wanted to be the voice for those women. And I think when it came to the Birthing on Country project, there was so much happening. It, people in the project and, and even now, the people that are involved in Birthing on Country, they're so passionate and there really isn't impossible, you know, options. Everything is doable you really have to dream big and you really have to want to have women and babies at the centre because you really want to make an improvement. You know, if you come in with bad intention, you know, things are just not going to go the way that we felt that it was going to go. We honestly felt like, yes, this is, we're going to get it done. Even now I feel like it's going to happen. Um, I'm a bit more um, open-minded about the time frame. Like 
you know, where we're thinking two to five years down the track, I'm, I'm a bit more open-minded. I, I know that there are a lot of issues, levels of issues that are ongoing. You know, it's not just one or two things that can be fixed overnight. So I uh, definitely feel like um, it is doable and I, and, I, and I really want the birth home country to um, work where it's where it is at the moment, you know, interstate where it's working in a larger sort of regional areas or even in the inner city areas to have that experience of women to be able to facilitate birthing on country um, the way that they feel, um, the way that they know best for themselves because I know that it'll filter down to the remote communities. So it might take us a bit longer but it'll, it'll definitely filter down here and we need to be able to talk to women out bush and tell them, you know, this, this can happen, this is an option for you. Um, we're just so used to being you know, the yes, man, yes, um, this is a great service. Yes, I'll take it. Um, where this is really good information for you. Yes, I'll, ta- you know, I'll take this advice. Um, we need to be able to empower women to to be able to speak up and say what it is that they want in their birthing experience. And, you know, that's what Birthing on Country was all about. It was it, it was about talking to people, talking to communities and, and saying what do, what is it that you want because so many times services are, Put together and um, you know other services that have come from you know even overseas they they're great services and they work very well for indigenous people or or the the particular group in which they're designed for and then people think I'll adapt it to an Aboriginal community or an Aboriginal lifestyle and it, and it just it doesn't work to as successful as a as something that we created would have worked um, so you know I, I I'm an advocate for making improvements, but it needs to be with our involvement and our say-so. Um, and that's what the Birthing on Country project was for me. I needed to be able to be a voice. You know, I had some experience because I'd been working at Bush and I'd been working in Alice Springs. So part of that was, I, you know, being a midwife and being Aboriginal, I definitely was more closely connected to the project than other people say that I'm not Indigenous because I'm an Aboriginal woman. This affects me 100%. You know, it needs to work because I need my future and, you know, potentially my sons or, you know, my daughter's futures to to be able to birth on country if that's what they choose to do. So, yeah, I'm very passionate about it even now and I'll, I'll still speak up and advocate it and be involved if I can. Um, if I'm invited, I'm more than happy to be involved. Um, but, yeah, I'm just kind of in the background just cheering everyone else on, like, we want to we make this happen, yeah. Sharice, you're, you're involved in so many things. It's it's amazing. And uh, I'm so impressed with, with the range of activities that you're doing. But but you're also a mum, a very busy mum. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about being a mum uh, and also your experience of miscarriage and stillbirth and the kind of cultural issues that health professionals or hospitals or institutions should understand. Yeah, so... Um so as it is, I'm a mum of three boys and um, three boys living and one daughter who's passed. My um, sons, Dylan and Douglas, they're twins. They're going to be seven in a in about three months' time. Um, they're just a ball of energy um, as twins go. And I've got my son who's going to be two. His name's Angus um, and he's just like the light of our lives. Like he just can do no wrong. Um, and, yeah, he, they're just amazing. They just keep me busy. Um, you know, I love being a mum. I'm at I'm at the point of trying to balance um, returning to work as well as being a mum because I 
I'm a, I'm sort of one of those, I'm not a helicopter mum, but I, I'm involved in a lot of everything. You know, I'm involved in their healthcare. Um, I go to every appointment. And so even my partner says, oh, if you can't come, then we won't, you know, we'll change the appointment. I just want to be, um, you know, involved in, in every aspect of their life while I can. Um, and being able to work part-time, that's helpful. Um, and doing shift work is also really helpful because I can kind of pick and choose my hours. And um, at least a month ahead, I know what my plans are for myself and the boys and you know I feel supported by my family to to raise these three boys into men and um, I feel really blessed because um the boys came to us when they were three um at the very same time that I was pregnant with Angus and so I thought you know I was gonna um I enrolled in uni at the same time I don't know why I thought I was gonna do all of this with just taking on two twins um yeah with twin boys and with um being pregnant but um, you know, I, I definitely um, stepped up and I, I've enjoyed every minute of being their mum. Being a midwife, I feel like, you know, we, we can juggle, you know, I can juggle seven or eight patients. Um, and so I'm able to juggle things a bit more better than most people because I, you know, I need to be able to organise my time over the shift. So it is very much like I'll organise my day. I've got a calendar on the wall and that's how I kind of set things out. And um, my partner's very visual. So if I put things on a calendar, he knows what's going on. If it's not on the calendar, it's not happening. And he goes ahead and makes other plans. And then he kind of just picks up the slack wherever he can, where he's doing the, you know, drop-offs and pick-up. But before I had my son, Angus, I had a bit of a rough go. I had issues with miscarriage. I'd had um, a missed miscarriage when I was living in Melbourne. I was separated from my then partner. I never really had kids in my mind until I was 30. I thought once I get to 30, I'll try for a family. I really wanted to focus on my career. That was my main thing. So you know, when I got to 30, that was my thing. I had a miscarriage. I had um, another miscarriage following. I think I was further along the second time. I think I was about 14 or 15 weeks. So um, that to me was a bit more of a, I guess, a bit more of a hit than the missed miscarriage because I wasn't expecting at that time. Um, and then when I moved to Canberra, I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter. And so my current partner, he'd just moved. We'd kind of just gotten together within a few months. We went to Canberra. He moved with me. And I just told everyone at work, yep, you know, I'm expecting. And because I'd had an incident where I actually fainted at work. So people were asking questions. So um, I told my boss, oh, you know, I'm pregnant and it's happening right at the beginning of the project. Um, And I didn't, I worried about how that would go with my job because I just started and, you know, it was going to be over two years. So I thought, you know, having a baby, that's going to consume a lot of time. Um, But anyway, I was dedicated yeah, unfortunately, I was I travelling a lot. I can't say that that was the cause of um, losing my daughter, but, um, you know, I do think about it all the time, whether I should have could have done things differently. But I had my partner with me and, yeah, I went into early labour. I didn't know it was labour at the time. I knew that something was wrong because I'd had those experiences before. And then it kind of was over a day that things were happening. I, it was within, within a day of having an ultrasound. So the ultrasound showed that everything was fine. And then I think I was about 20 weeks and four or five days when I, I woke up, my partner called the ambulance. He came he came to get me, took me to the hospital, and um, I had said to them, look, I think I'm in labour. I feel like this isn't stopping. The pain's getting stronger. And um, being a midwife, I thought I knew what I was going through. So, you know, I expressed myself to the best that I could in that moment. And I just I didn't feel like I was being heard at all. You know, my partner was there. He was pretty much in the background. He didn't want to say anything because, you know, we come from growing up an experience of, you know, his darker skin. Him and I are about the same same skin colour, but 
being Aboriginal people, we feel like being strong or being outspoken is going to be seen in a negative way. So for him, he's quite a tall bloke. So for him, it was more, if I say something, am I going to be perceived to be a bad person or am I going to be perceived to be a tacky or argumentative? So he didn't feel comfortable at all to speak up in that space. And so we called a a friend of ours to come and support us through that time. And um, she's a beautiful um, midwife. And she came and she sat with us and she, you know, spoke for me. And she's a lady who's non-Indigenous. So for us, it was, you know, we called this other person to come and support us because we, I felt like I wasn't being heard. My partner was too afraid to speak up. And, you know, as the day progressed, things started to get a bit, a bit better. I started to feel a bit heard. But at that point, I think it was, um, you kind of take it in the moment. So you're just kind of dealing with things as they happen. So progressively, my waters broke. I'd had an ultrasound, it showed the cervix was open. We were expecting, there was what they call expectant management, that she would be born. There was a huge turnaround in our care once there was a changeover of staff and we were moved into this nice big family room and we we were in that room. Um, We had our own little kitchenette. Um, You know, it was a beautiful room. It had a little bathroom and a nice big double bed. And so, yeah, we just kind of hunkered down for the night and... um, I managed to get a few hours sleep, partner didn't sleep, and then um, the next day the pain started again and and we thought um, we knew that she, yeah, my daughter would be born and we'd known for a couple of days that I was going to have a girl and my partner, he, he'd always said from the minute I told him that I was having a baby, he knew, like, that, yeah, I, it, she's a girl. He'd already named her and everything. And, um, yeah, my daughter was born at um, just after 2 o'clock that day and I remember the midwife who was with us, she was just amazing, just just the loveliest, kindest person in that moment and the kind of midwife that you, you know, that you want to be for someone. I remember trying to prepare my partner because I'd I'd seen a few babies that were born that were this, you know, very, very small sort of early um, gestation babies and I tried to warn my partner and I was trying to say, you know, she'll look different, she'll be small and, um, you know, I remember trying to comfort him in that time and, um, when she was born, it was just, I still remember, you know, she was born and up on my chest and my partner and I were just there just sitting with her and it was just the most beautiful experience. Every day afterwards, although sad, you know, I, I feel really lucky and blessed to be able to have had that experience to to be with her um, for those few days and leaving definitely was the hardest thing. So, you know, Senna is my daughter's name and she's very much a part of our life even now. Like she, we had her... I uh, guess her birthday anniversary on the 11th of this month and um, we went out to the cemetery, we spent the day, um, you know, um, my partner's mum came which was really lovely because um, previously she'd lost a baby, you know, around the same gestation so it was really lovely for her to be able to come and have that time with us as well and, you know, clean the headstone and she raked around the, the headstone and um, we just laid some fresh flowers and brought some toys and things like we do. Um, we're always buying gifts for Senna and taking them there and we took the boys and we had some cake um, saying happy birthday and, um, you know, my youngest son, he loves happy birthday, so relighting the candles and blowing them out three or four times. So I'm really lucky. I've got three boys and I've got a beautiful daughter and, you know, she's never too far from my mind and so Part of the what I do is, you know, I, I'm a, definitely a huge advocate and supporter for women that have had miscarriage and um, women that have been through stillbirth because, you know, that's very personal to me. That's an experience that 
so many of us have had, but not a lot of women like to talk about it as much. But as time goes on, I feel stronger and stronger to be able to talk about my experiences, you know, and to share with my sons. And and they're always making comments. They're always saying things like, oh, I've got a baby sister and she died. So, and I feel like, you know what? And that's the truth. Why, why hide the truth from kids? They, they need to understand these things. And I've got photos of Senna um, around my house. And so they, they're always looking at Senna and, you know, other people I've, I usually give, you know, warnings about what she might, you know, if I share photos with friends about what she looks like. But at the end of the day, I, it, do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me because, you know, she's my daughter. You know, my sons acknowledge how she is and how she was. And, you know, we just love talking about her all the time. And yeah, they're always saying, even now close to Christmas, so what's, I wonder what Santa's going to bring for Santa for her birthday. So, you know, we'll have a little present. We'll wrap it under the tree and we'll get the boys to open it on Christmas Day and, and then hopefully get time that day, if not the next day, to go out and, and lay it at the gravestone. So, yeah, I feel really lucky that, um, and I think it's kind of um, bittersweet, I guess, that I've had this experience and I've been a midwife and, um, you know, I've been involved in looking after women that have had similar experiences to me. So, you know, it is it is more that personal connection that I have with these women as well as being a midwife and, you know, part of my role is supporting them through some of the saddest times that, yeah, that, that we'll have experienced is loss of a child, no matter how old, I always say, you know, miscarriage, if you lose a baby under 10 weeks, it's a lot of loss is a loss, you know, all, all babies should be treated equally. Sharice, I just really want to acknowledge, um, you know, how generous you are uh, and how you ha- how generous you have been in talking about your own experiences of miscarriage and stillbirth. And I also think that, you know, these incredible experiences that you've talked about of being first in your family to go to university, um, the work you've done on birthing on country just, just makes you a very, very precious resource for us. And um, just really want to thank you for this conversation. So Charisse, my final question for you is where can listeners find out more about your work? Yeah, so um, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. So I have a Twitter handle, which is at Sister Charisse. So if anyone wants to follow me, um, you know, I'll sometimes share from time to time, um, you know, things that I'm doing or even just my thoughts on different things, Um, but also just sharing lots of really silly things about what my kids are doing, Um, you know, just normal real life stuff. And um, I'm on LinkedIn as well, so I'm happy to make connections on LinkedIn. I'm not as active on there as I could be. Um, And also I do have a a Facebook page, which is mostly personal, but um, I do have a bit of involvement with the um, Indigenous Midwives for Tomorrow. We are a trust that gives Aboriginal student midwives and midwives um, scholarships to continue studying or um, further their education. So I'm the chair of the committee, and so um, we do have a Facebook um, page. I guess our trading name is the Redanthi Lipset Indigenous Midwifery Charitable Trust um, or Charitable Fund. Um, we have a website and, um, you know, we have a my cause. Support the Indigenous Midwives for tomorrow because, um, you know, we need those Aboriginal midwives to be looking after Aboriginal community because we know how to look after them best. You know, Aboriginal women will thrive um, from seeing Aboriginal midwives taking part in their healthcare. So, Um, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, I'm wholly accessible. I also have a large network. So, you know, all of us midwives, we all know each other. Um, Midwives and nurses, we all talk and um, we make connections. So, 
If it's not specific to my area, I you know guarantee I probably know someone who's connected to that area and hopefully can put you guys in touch. Sharice, it's been a privilege to hear about your experiences of being a midwife and a consumer of perinatal services. What you've shared about receiving care and being vulnerable was moving, instructive and sometimes infuriating. It's especially painful to know, and I'm sure listeners will have felt this too, that despite your knowledge, you still needed an ally in order to be heard. That makes me so mad. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. You can find more episodes, transcripts and links at ruthdesouza.com slash podcast. I'll add links to Sharice and her work there too, as well as resources for people who've had experiences of miscarriage and stillbirth. If you enjoyed the first episode of season three, please subscribe to the show, leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends or colleagues. Next time on Birthing and Justice. I think I just turned 21 and I realized how naive I was. That I believed that nurses couldn't be racist. You could be racist in your home, but once you came into the hospital, it's like you're supposed to turn that off. I'll speak with Lucinda Canty, a mother, nurse midwife, nurse researcher, nursing professor, historian, black feminist, reproductive health justice activist, artist and poet based in Connecticut. Birthing and Justice with Dr. Ruth D'Souza is written and hosted by me and recorded at my home on the traditional lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Our sound design and mix is by John Chia, who's our producer and editor. Artwork for the show comes from Atong Atom, with design by Ethan Sang, and Raquel Salia composed our theme music. This podcast is supported by funding from the RMIT University Vice-Chancellor's Fellowship Program. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up again soon.